How much do you know about show business, Mr. Valiant? Only there's no business like it. No business I know. Yeah, and there's no business more expensive. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Gee whiz, Eddie, if you needed money so bad, why didn't you come to me? So I took a couple of dirty bitches, so kill me. I already got a stiff on my hands, thank you. Marvin Acme. A rabbit cacked him last night. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Valiant, the rabbit didn't kill Acme. He's not a murderer. I should know. He's a dear friend of mine. I tell you, Valiant, the whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Look at this. The paper said Acme left no will. That's a load of sucker dash. Every toon knows Acme had a will. He promised to leave Toontown to us toons. That will is the reason he got pumped off. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Who Framed Roger Rabbit, starring Bob Hoskins. You said you'd never take another two cases. Why'd you have a change of heart? Nothing's changed. Somebody's made a patchy on me, and I'm gonna find out why. Charles Fleischer. Please, Eddie. You know there's no justice for tombs anymore. What are we gonna do, Eddie? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? That's all this wee stuff. They just want the rabbit. Kathleen Turner. You got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Joanna Cassidy. Marie's not after Toontown like you thought. It's Cloverleaf that wants to get their hands on Toontown. They put in the highest bid. And unless Mr. Acme's bill shows up by midnight tonight, Cloverleaf is going to own Toontown. And Christopher Lloyd. What are you talking about? There's no road past Toontown. Not yet. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils. A construction plan of epic proportions. They are calling it a freeway. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. Does this help? Yeah, thanks. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> Come on, Eddie, where's your sense of humor? He always is funny, or only on days when he's wanted for murder. Hello, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. My problem is that I have a fifth-year-old lust and a three-year-old stinky. It's Gally in Glasgow. Shave and a haircut. It's Devlin in London. I'm going to ram him. It's Patrick in London. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. It's Anne from Warwickshire. Oh! Hello! Hello and welcome back, gang. And welcome back, listeners. Now, listeners, keen-eared listeners, will recognise that Matt is not M. And M is not Matt. The sausage factory has been infiltrated. There's a Yorkshire pudding among us. I wish I was from Yorkshire, because that would just be perfection. The tone in the hole. There we go. Um, so we are back. We are back with a new episode and a special guest, M from Verbal Diorama. Listeners may remember M from Super Mario Brothers, um, 1993. You're back for more. I'm back for more Bob Hoskins because it <laughs> oh, appears yeah. that I have this weird fascination with Bob Hoskins. Uh, he is the 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 man. The late legend himself, Bob Hoskins, um, and uh, I clearly I'm in love with him. Forget Keanu Reeves; he's gone. 
all about Bob now. Well, I, I know which one I would pick versus, you know, a unshaven brute of a man, uh, <laughs> especially in this film. He looks like an absolute five pound dish. And that versus, you know, Keanu Reeves, you know, surfboard abs. So, yeah, you've chosen wisely. What what would be the trilogy film for Bob Hoskins if we do another one? It's got to be Hook, surely. It's got to be Hook, hasn't it? I do love him in it's Hook. Around the, so. It's around the right time as well. <laughs> and he's got a beard in that, so he's even sexier. Yeah. No, he, he is he is a man. Oh well welcome back, Em. Um we are very much looking forward to this. So listeners, we are doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit, directed by Robert Zemeckis from nineteen eighty eight. So yes. Em, we're gonna start now by first experiences and also why you chose this. This is your episode. We understand that Bob Hoskins had a, a sort of a huge part to play in your you know, it was literally because... a list of Bob Hoskins on IMDb, <laughs> and that mm. that was that was the choosing process for me. Uh... This close to Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so uh, I, it leads me to say, Em. So why Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and and what first experiences did you have with it? When did you when did you first uh, when did you first catch eyes on Bob without his top on? Obviously, I listened to you guys. And obviously, as a fan of the the art of animation, it's something that I particularly love to talk about. I especially love to talk about on my podcast, Hand-Drawn Animation, because it is a dying art. Um, it's not something that, especially Western uh, Hollywood studios, they don't tend to do it anymore. And so I realised when I was looking at the, the Rewind Back catalogue, I thought to myself, well, there's not much animation in this back catalogue. In fact, there's literally one <laughs> which Patrick's already mentioned so I thought well we need to do something to remedy that um so that's kind of the main reason and then I thought well obviously I want to talk about Bob Hoskins but also who friend Roger Rabbit is such a miracle of a film you watch this movie and still to this day I'm blown away by the details of this movie and just like how did they do it? You know, it's one of those movies that I grew up thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. How? And in many ways, that kind of, it kind of formed my love for movies in general. And, you know, I've spoken on my podcast before about, you know, why I started the podcast and, and, and mainly it was Jurassic Park and it was what, how did they do Jurassic Park? Like, whoa, this is amazing. But it was also movies like this and like just the idea of, of having the, the live action world and the animated world together on screen. I know it's been done before, but it's not been done in this very detailed, intricate way before where, you know, the things like they took the time to like shade the animation so that it looked genuinely 3D. Whereas if you look at something like Mary Poppins, as an example, you know, it's just literally live action people with some animated <laughs> penguins doing a bit of a dance. Yeah, this is fun, but they're not really interacting with each other. They're, they're not talking to each other. They're not handing things to each other. It's just, honestly, this is this is one of those movies where I'm just always wowed by it, even though I know how they did it. I kind of don't want to know <laughs> because I'm just like, this movie is so magical. You know, in the history of movie making, people always go to certain movies and they go, well, this was a landmark of cinema. That was a landmark of cinema. But really, this is a landmark. This is something that will never happen again. Very good. You almost went partridge there, by the way, um, when you went <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> what about you, Patrick? For as long as I can remember, 
I've been familiar with this film, certainly. So I watched it when I was very young, I think. Uh, I remember it quite fondly. I remember it being fun, but I haven't seen it in years. And I don't know how many years, but I'm very glad to revisit it this week. Thanks, Em. Um, and yeah, an- animation was very important to me growing up. I wrote a little uh, blog piece on top 100 films recently and highlighting that how many animated films are in that list. And Guillermo del Toro, you know, he said when he won um, Oscar for uh, and the BAFTA for ben- Pinocchio recently, how important animation is. And animation is cinema and shouldn't be looked down upon. And I'm a real, uh, I get behind him a lot for that. And um yeah, we need more animated films on this podcast. <laughs> You're quite right. Um, I've been trying to get them into musicals first, and then I'll concentrate on animation for you. Okay. Um, De- Devlin, when did you first watch this film? Um, well, it was a huge deal. It, it was. I remember the marketing for it was was really really big. Um, I didn't go to the cinema for it either. Um, I would have been just a bit too young. Eighty late eighty eight. I would have been like four which I had had my first cinema trip by that point, but it was, again, yeah, it wasn't something we did very, very regularly. So I would have um, probably waited for the TV show in for this. I don't think we ever owned this one on video, but I do remember it being on TV relatively regularly, and I really loved it. I was a big um, Warner Brothers cartoons fan as a kid. Just as a huge Looney Tunes animations fan. That was my, that was my absolute favorite. So um, to see that kind of... Um, uh, energy brought into like a full scale theatrical feature not that at the time i understood what that was like but it was um yeah i i, I loved this and um uh i've i've seen it sporadically in the years since it's not something that i've seen um uh super regularly it's um unusual perhaps it's not something that comes up on the tv schedules as much as you might think for a film that's so beloved and a film that has such a potentially wide audience but um i had the most fortuitous time in which is about two weeks ago uh the glorious prince charles cinema was doing a 4k restoration in the main screen and uh um it absolutely killed like in a in an almost full cinema how 30 whatever years later um it plays so incredibly well in a cinema so that was my first time getting to see it in a cinema and uh and, and that was that was honestly a wonderful experience um galley have you did you venture out to the warner cinema on festival park for this one was that did that exist back then the warner cinema um no it was a it was an odeon um oh, but, okay uh, but it's okay it's all right you know stoke you know leveling up um but <laughs> yeah saw this one young i've had so much distance between watching it this week and again like patrick said um thank you very much um to when i last saw it uh and you're absolutely right Devlin. um i can't remember the last time i saw it on the schedule and and this is probably me being a bit of an old fud but i tend to put a lot of stock in like what gets on rotation on terrestrial just because somebody's decided in the in the channels that something's worth investing in or alternatively um the owners of said property have made it almost impossible for you to actually grab. And I probably think it's the latter. Um, but I find it interesting because, like you say, it's got broad appeal. I, I assume I don't have Disney Plus, but I assume it's on Disney Plus, right? It is, yeah. Um, yeah. OK, so that will be the other the other reason why um, it's kind of passed me by over the last few years anyway. Um, but 
yeah, what a pleasure. But I saw this young, and unlike you, Em, where you, you gravitated straight away to the how did they do this, I just accepted it as, well, there's a there's a Bob Hoskins-shaped man interacting with a with an animated rabbit. That just happens. Uh, and obviously, you take these things for granted because I think now modern audiences, and we'll maybe touch upon it a little bit, um, take it for granted big time as to studios with the way that they can essentially create animated characters from computer-generated images pretty easily, um, or certainly far easier than, than say, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, and yeah, the, the nostalgic pull of wanting to see this version of a, a broad family film uh, really did hit me this week. Sandwiches remaining in lunchbox, but the top just got cricked open there a little bit. So yeah, um, just a little whiff I, I think of the sandwich. Just a whiff of the uh, uh, corned beef. <laughs> I didn't even realise this. Again, you know, this is one of the things that I love about the show is uh, I have to do some modicum version of uh, of research. I didn't realise it was a book. Did you? Did you guys know it was originally uh, an adaptation? Not, not until this week, no. But no, I had no, I had no idea um, whatsoever. I just assumed it was uh, a kind of. I, I knew that Warner Brothers and Disney had collaborated on this, uh, but I had no. I I just assumed that they just decided, right? Well, we're going to do a bit of a mashup. I had no idea that the the book came first, and then Disney bought the rights. Then there was a negotiate, all that kind of stuff. I had no idea. So just for those people that are really interested in kind of the history, the long tail history of the making of this. Then M, episode four of Verbal Diorama, right? Uh, you you recount this very thing that I talk of, which is the making of this film, yes? It, it is my forte to, you know, history, legacy, blah, 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 all of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, um, all I will say is it's a very early episode of the podcast. Oh, the classic, yes. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, people should listen. It's not that duff. Uh, I'm rubbish at... I'm rubbish at promoting myself. It's like, oh, it's a bit tough. Well, we will we will do that. And we'll link uh, that episode in our show notes for those people that want to listen to it. But definitely, yeah, there's a plethora of stuff on YouTube. You've got M's episode as well. The making of this film is incredible and it deserves like an entire episode. We're going to talk about what we think, how we feel, why it's the way it is. Sandwiches again, lid is slightly cracked. Okay, here we go. So Patrick, before we get into the detail... Would you care to remind us and the listeners of the plot to Who Framed Roger Rabbit? When the fridge lands on Toon Roger Rabbit's head for the 23rd time during filming of cartoon Baby Herman and Roger Rabbit, Roger fluffs his lines again and R.K. Maroon, head of Maroon Cartoon Studios, has his concerns for the recent performances as he's gone over budget. Maroon hired private detective Eddie Valiant to investigate Roger's wife Jessica Rabbit, who charges $100, unlike Dumbo, who works for Peanuts. Eddie's partial to a drink these days after losing his brother. A toon murdered him, dropped a piano on his head. He visits Dolores at Terminal Station Bar for a drink and borrow a camera, which he uses to photograph impossible femme fatale Jessica Rabbit, who is performing at the Ink and Paint Club. Marvin Acme, owner of Toontown, never misses a night Jessica performs and Eddie catches them backstage playing patty cake. Roger is distraught when he sees the photo and next morning, Marvin Acme is found dead. The evidence points to Roger as the killer and Eddie meets Judge Doom at, at the crime scene. Toontown's scary superior court judge who has devised an awful chemical substance called the Dip 
capable of destroying tombs, a capital punishment that will await Roger upon capture. Tasked with this capture is a gang of toon weasels. Baby Herman, stogie in hand, visits Eddie to convince him that Roger's innocent and that Acme wrote a will. Eddie spots something in a photo he took. Maybe Baby Herman was right. And as he gets into bed, who should be lying next to him but Roger? Eddie protects Roger and Jessica visits unannounced, surprising Eddie to tell him that he was set up to take those photos. As Dolores catches Eddie with his pants down, he had just got out of the shower, to explain that new company Cloverleaf wants to get their hands on Toontown, not Maroon. They need to find the will by midnight. Doom has found them, but they make a daring escape with the help of Benny the Taxicab, fleeing to a theatre where Eddie lands now. Maroon Cartoons is being bought by Cloverleaf too. There's the connection. But as Eddie goes to interrogate Maroon, Maroon is murdered and Roger kidnapped. Eddie chases the killer to Toontown, ridding himself of the drink as he progresses on. Finding Jessica tells him that Doon killed Acme and Maroon. <gasps> Jessica and Eddie are captured by the weasels and Doon reveals himself as the sole shareholder of, you guessed it, Cloverleaf. He wants to destroy Toontown with a truckload of dip and replace it with a profitable road, a freeway. Roger's rescue attempt doesn't work and is faced with death with his beloved Jessica. Eddie rolls back the ears to make the weasels laugh themselves to death, just like their idiot hyena cousins, and flattens Doom with a steamroller. But Doom, holy smoke, is a tomb. <gasps> the tomb that killed Eddie's brother. <sighs> Can Eddie defeat Doom, save Roger and Jessica, find the will and save Toontown in time? Well, that's all, folks. Very, very, very good, Patrick. Um, I like that. You were getting, I thought you were going to go higher than a weasel there if you were getting very excited there. Uh, might need to put you in the dip. Um, yeah, no, that was, uh, that was good. I, I'm going to start straight up. So, uh, and you've kind of already mentioned it, um, and Patrick, um, and I, I put it in my notes that the animation is not a genre, right? Okay. It's not a, like a genre. It's a, it's a form. Um, but, what I what I didn't realise and then had uh, recognised this week when I rewatched the film is this is a broad church of a film, right? It, it appeals to both adults and children, but some of the adult themes are, you know, that plot you just mentioned there, more intricate than say Over the Hedge. I've never seen Over the Hedge, but I'm assuming <laughs> it's probably more intricate. Well, it's a it's a what the nine. Uh... Noir detective. It's a hard-boiled film noir. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's Chinatown. It's angels with dirty faces. <laughs> you know, that's unusual, right? That you would, um, you would bank on, on the audience being able to keep up. You know, you normally keep it nice and simple, i.e. the, the animation right at the beginning, which is baby escapes into kitchen, kitchen full of hazards, rabbit struggles. That's it. But no, they, you know, they've got the confidence in, in doing this whole hard-boiled film noir, LA, dirty gumshoe story it's it's a great opening to the film to set that tone though isn't it the and the film has the balance of animation and live action which if you're discussing with the audiences adult or children we're we're playing to both there but to immediately subvert that with the baby with the what did you call it the 50 year old baby with a three-year-old dinky dinky? um (laughs) is um quite the quite the payoff to the gag at the beginning and you know, we immediately understand what kind of film this is going to be, right? In rewatching the film, what I what I loved was um, that 
there is a lot of heavy lifting that you probably need to do in a film like this in order to set people up to understand exactly what they're going for because no one had had attempted something that was such a kind of a weird juxtaposition of a of a relatively believable kind of Raymond Chandler-esque gumshoe conspiracy plot um and the wackiest of wacky mid-century animations and um for one thing the the opening short being so fucking good really helps like mm. the fact that it is a phenomenal example of of that kind of animation but the 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 single take shot that goes from the fridge where the fridge has to believably be both fully realized in three-dimensional space and also believably look like it comes from an animation and then uh tracking that uh that long kind of dolly shot across the set with my favorite sight gag in the whole film which is the mum's giant legs <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the full the, the giant puppeteer and then in one focus pull to rack focus to our hard drinking hard-boiled gumshoe detective standing in the shadows swigging from a bottle of hooch it's like i think i i am just uh uh in i was just in awe from that point on uh how quickly they set up exactly what they needed to do in terms of like the the language of the genres that we were playing with you have to get both of them so right otherwise people aren't going to go along with it and to do so in the space of essentially one quick sequence it's like you're off to the races if you'd have fucked up that intro you would be playing catch up for the remainder of the running time mm. yeah no agreed i mean um seen anything like this before this this mashup this hybrid mashup that is done so well as as devlin rightly put i mean no and i and i think that's kind of the point and i think that's why this film endures for as you know for as long as it has is the fact that it feels so fresh and so unique even to this day um and just on the point of that that opening shot i think you know anyone who went to the cinema or who watched this on tv or whatever Every, pretty much everyone grew up on Looney Tunes cartoons and you know that idea of some you know ridiculous character you know with these death-defying feats and you know no laws of physics no nothing and everyone grew up on those cartoons and really it's a bit of a masterstroke to put something like that at the start of that movie because not only will it make kids laugh because Kids do love cartoons. It is a general fact. One of the things I'd always say in my podcast is, you know, that animation is not just for children. And it, it's not. And this is this is one of those movies that proves that point. But also, children do generally gravitate towards bright colours and, you know, fun and laughter and, you know, toilet humour and all of that sort of stuff that, that these these kind of animated shorts tended to do so well. And that's why, as kids, we all enjoyed them and watched them so you've got that kind of facet of of an audience that if if you're a child and you're you're going to see this movie and it opens up with this cartoon and you'll be instantly transfixed but then if you're an adult you would have grown up watching looney tunes cartoons you know mickey mouse and you would also kind of be transfixed as well because it, it kind of taps into that nostalgia of watching those kind of animated shorts um you know shorts that would occasionally be on tv and you know back in the day we're talking 
for listeners who were, you know, in their twenties or whatever, this is this is like back in the day we're talking. But you know, occasionally you'd have a Looney Tunes cartoon just pop up on the TV because they had a five minute slot to fill. You don't get that nowadays, but you used to. And it- oh, I am. I'm. I'm. I mean, maybe it was a Stoke thing, but I remember you would sometimes get shorts before the the main feature at the yeah. cinema. So yeah. I think you could you could arguably uh, in 1988 have walked in late because. There are those people that do that. I don't understand it. Just get their farmers. <laughs> well, anyway, they, they turn up late. Uh, they walk in, they get their seat. They could think that they were watching the short. Um, but as Devlin said, that the amount of information that you get in those first five minutes, uh, it's just because the world, and, and one of the things that I, I, I kind of recognized the genius of the, the film is the first 45 minutes is essentially exposition isn't it like we're getting so much information but it's not exposition just about the plot it's about this world and i think who framed roger rabbit now i'm going to use as an example for like world building if you're ever going to say like well what's a good example of of a film that 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 presents a world that you've never seen before uh and takes you along this film is 100 percent up there with some of the best because you get all the information visually no one really tells you so we know that tunes they're kind of second class citizens. They're all, unless you're an actor, unless you're somebody of, of, of value, they tend to be working like the menial jobs. Most people seem to have a bit of disdain. Certainly our main character, Eddie, obviously does. We don't know the history behind that, but but we know loads about him too. Uh, he's he's a crank. He's a drunk. Tunes. It's uh, it's it's what Matt Ridley, um, what Matt always loves to say when when he says, "What is your what are your characters doing when you first mm-hmm. meet them?" And Roger is doing this incredible performance in this ridiculous cartoon, and then he's fucking it up, and he's having to beg and plead, and he's like the 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 transition between him smacking himself in the head trying to make stars come out and then that rack focus to just like tunes and then just drinking and um valiant's uh um spying of the hooch bottles yeah oh, just the like licking of the lips i laughed i laughed so loud when i saw bob hoskins licking his lips because he saw that yeah. bottle of sweet sweet hooch. <laughs> it was great. and the, the the blocking in that second scene with maroon where you see him just flash right over the over the shoulder to see it and then well, he, while he's asking if he's going to take the job, he's up <laughs> and he's, he's up to go and get himself. Um, I yeah, I used to love that. Um, it's true. The Looney Tunes cartoons used to be pretty ubiquitous when we were kids. I remember they used to sell quite cheap VHS um, compilation tapes as well. Mm-hmm. If you guys yeah. used to have those, like yeah, the, you'd have like the Looney Tunes and the Merry Melodies collections. I also over there. You can't see it because it's an audio podcast, but I'm pointing over to my right. Uh, I have the um, the Looney Tunes 32-disc DVD oh. box set, which um, is just extraordinary. Like the, I think one thing to, um, to say was that this was clearly a film that understood how extraordinarily well-made those shorts were. You could tell that there was such a deep, like, admiration for the, the, the artistry of the stuff that it's not really lampooning. It's more celebrating really. It's well, it's also used. It's kind of like an opening action sequence, you know, it, it just yeah. bang straight in the film. It's wow. It's exciting. It's like incredible. And 
doesn't need to be live action. The, the animation, there's all the action in there. And so you have the animation sequence of action, and then you get animation and live action as action sequence later in the film. It's just, it's a really nice blend and development throughout the film as well. If, if we're talking about maybe an introduction to the, you know, that you can't throw them, the audience straight into animation and live action, maybe at the beginning, it's a, it's a clever way of, of doing that. But it also, you, you mentioned it. It's, an expectation. Am I watching a short here? What is this? And then, oh, they're actors. Cut! Alright, that's a cut. Cut, 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 cut! What the hell was wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. This Roger, he keeps blowing his line. Roger, what's this? A tweeting bird. A tweeting bird. Roger, read this. Look what it says. It says, rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars, not birds. Stars! Can we lose the playback, please? Roger, you're killing me, killing me. For crying out loud, Roger. How the hell many times do we have to do this damn scene? No! I'll be in my trailer. Taking a nap. Excuse me, Dutch. You know, the other thing as well that it sets up is the the camera, right? So the animation is not the, the moment where we have the... Uh, we've discussed it before in other films, you know, the impossible camera. Um well, the active camera that Zemeckis uses is the same in the animation as when we go hybrid. Yes. That is almost like a, you know, if you're coming in cold, you think, well, okay, this is very zany, but once, once we get Bob and... and it's not, it's not like a static camera throughout the film either. No, it's, it's not at all. It's immediately like, well, this is how the whole film's going to be. So just get used to it. We're going to be uh, sweeping. There's going to be uh, rack focus. And the animation is going to remain in in the composition. This is why, as a kid, I just accepted it because I think they do so well mm-hmm. in the first five minutes that I now accept. Well, this is this is the way it's going to be. And it's only now, as I'm older, that I realise that this is how you know, you don't make a film if you want to make a film, um, you know, quickly. <laughs> Certainly, uh, it's not the way, is it? The idea of that having that kind of non-fixed camera that camera that kind of will kind of move around a scene but the animation kind of stays almost like i said at the start looking 3d um i mean that all comes from richard williams um who's i I can't remember what he's credited out exactly because i don't have it in my notes but i think he's the animation director i think he's the animation director but i don't know if any of you guys have seen the concept work for the thief and the cobbler um, so the thief, it's its quite a notorious story in Hollywood. So the thief and the cobbler was this kind of epic animation that Richard Williams was working on. And honestly, it's some of the most amazing hand-drawn animation that you will ever see in your life. Um, there's clips on YouTube. I highly recommend anyone listening to check out clips of the original The Thief and the Cobbler because he would take these 2D animations and make them 3D and he would basically move. I, I, I can't even describe how he how he did it, how he did it. But it, he would like move the um, the the cell kind of round, so it looks like a three D image. Um, so it's obviously with animation, you have to keep the camera fixed. You can't move the camera when you're animating, so the the image has to move. Um, but basically, the the story about the thief and the cobbler is uh, quite an interesting one because he was working on it for. I think 17 years or something ridiculous. Um, And then um, the studio, I think, I don't know the whole story, but the studio gave him a deadline. They said, oh, you've got to finish it or else we'll take it off you. And they they took it off him and then they released it 
I think they released it as something called Arabian Nights, but they basically stripped all of his animation out of it to get it finished. And it's basically what what ended up being released was nothing like what he originally envisaged. But obviously, with him being the um, director of animation on this movie, you can you can clearly see the inspiration there. If if you like I say, if you look at clips, it's really hard to explain on an audio podcast how majestic his animation for The Thief and the Cobbler was. So honestly, some of the most beautifully, intricately designed animation. And it is the sort of animation that makes you go, wow, how did they do that? Do, do, does that, do you see that specifically in Roger Rabbit? Is that higher standard for what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it, it's not, they're not really comparable in a way because it is the, the, animation that he did on the thief and the cobbler was like i say it took him years and years so this was really detailed work uh and obviously roger rabbit did take a while to get made as as all animated movies do and, and movies with any sort of animation do but there are similarities in the way that the animation is obviously flat because that's how animation works. But the way the camera moves around, the the animation will move with the yeah, camera so yeah. it makes it look 3D. It's not South Park cutouts that are no. <laughs> trick of the eye, but you you know, just like anything, if you want to create depth then you need to you need to everything needs to be in proportion and then your eye will and that's what they do in this, right? There's the 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 scene that I think is a, a really good example of all of the the tricks that they use to make a Roger and uh, Eddie's interactions feel so real is when I think they're in the back of the bar and there's a swinging light. Oh, yeah. They've got light and shade, but also Roger comes uh, comes close to the camera, then goes back, then goes into darkness. And throughout all of his movements, his proportions change, the shadows change. And then you've also got uh, some other tricks, which we can also talk about. But certainly from a, yeah, from a technical standpoint, I wrote in my notes, and I kind of stand by this, but it was also a bit of a, I was trying to bait a little <laughs> bit of a discussion. But I wrote, like, technically better than 2001 A Space Odyssey? Because, well, technically, as a film, we haven't even d discussed whether or not it works or not, but technically, yeah, this film needs to be seen um, just if you to are interested believed. in... Yeah, to be believed indeed. <laughs> uh, an ape with a bone versus a Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Right? Like you, you're watching it. And as I say, my eye, um, now I'm, you're looking for, you're looking for like the, the, discre you know, the discrepancies, but there aren't many at all. If any, really, it's pretty seamless. Their interaction feels believable. And the cartoons themselves, the tunes feel like fleshed out, believable characters. And part of that comes in the fact that they're three dimensional. I think it's testament though, Gally, from what you said and how I feel about the film. But the first time I ever watched it and this week, I didn't think about any of the technicalities or the, oh my God, I can't believe this is real. It just, I just accepted it. It's so seamless and flawless and it's, it's really well shot from a kind of confidence in, I don't know. It's a film. It's just a film that happens to have animation in it. And I didn't, I don't know. I just never. Uh, thought about the fact that they're not real at all or the technical feats of it in the first viewing. And I think that's, you know, that how good is the film if that's the way that you, you view it? 
the technicals came after when I was considering what we're going to talk about today. I'm like, oh my God, holy shit, this looks fucking unreal. And how the hell did they do that? And then I started to think about it. But to, to watch it um, as a piece of storytelling. Again, one of the positives of the movie is that he managed to make Roger and Jessica like literally the stars of a movie that's got Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, and you name it, they're all in there. But you still love Roger and jessica it's kind of it's kind of a a, a tall order in itself it is really it's it's quite it's quite impressive if you think about it because i really the the you know mickey mouse bugs bunny they are glorified cameos i mean you've got obviously dumbo in there you've got the uh the the sorcerer's apprentice you know daffy and donald and, and they are technically little cameos and they're really nice to have because it sets up this world as being legitimate so you know it's like if you just had um, a, a load of random tunes you didn't know who they were you might not think oh this is something that I can believe in but when you see Mickey Mouse Bugs Bunny you're like yeah I can believe in this world in fact um, uh, when I was younger I actually thought Roger Rabbit was a, an already established cartoon I, I didn't realise it was an invention when you're saying that like it legitimises it to have like the actual like recognized cartoons from the, the that it's it's a, a beautiful homage to the to the the genre and the well not the genre to the to the medium but also yeah it's like when you watch a film and they go on an off-brand search engine that doesn't exist and you immediately <laughs> think what we go back to the is, net are we Mozart's ghost there are just these like these you can't and and like the um the the suspension of disbelief for something like this has to be maintained so carefully that like any missteps are going to throw you right off. So it would be, yeah, it would be, uh, uh, if, if there was, you know, wacky duck and it was, you know, it's just off brand, just cheap. Like, off like Revolution Soccer in the, in the, when it started, like Zibane. Yes. And you could only do that Devlin once as a gag, right? Maybe some like off-brand Poundland mm. version of, of a character. You could do that as a joke, you know, the old uh, Poochie. <laughs> but opening the, opening the, the, the blinds to the actual Dumbo, the actual like perfectly illustrated, perfectly animated Disney Dumbo is like, it's, it's bracing. What, what does Maroon um, say is he's got you... some of them on loan from Disney, including half the cast of Fantasia. Yeah. <laughs> um, just going back to what you're saying about the technical aspects of the, the three dimensional of the characters there is one making of documentary on youtube which i assume is from i guess relatively near to the release of the film um probably a a late 80s or early 90s featurette and they have one of the animation directors i think it may be was his name richard williams is that the um talking about how carefully they calibrated how real to make them look because they said that you could have probably pushed further in in the direction of like um, shading and rounding them out. But he said that then they wouldn't look like tunes. You start falling into this uncanny valley, which is something that I think we've seen in later animation, uh, animated movies fully and also animation and live action hybrids is not... Um, not allowing the cartoons to remain cartoons. So, Are you referring um, to the Sonic debacle when it initially came out and you were like, holy shit, what the fuck <laughs> Hedgehog <is that>? teeth. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like, um, yeah, kind of. And, and, you know, to, to be able to, um, have what I would imagine are a, a, a huge number of really talented film professionals having such intricate discussions about how far to push something as opposed to just pushing it as far as you possibly can, because that's the state of the art 
it's pulling back, but also, so it, from what I saw, what they were doing was um, they were doing a, an, an additional pass after the, um, so you'd have your main character cell and then you would have a matte cell, which is essentially just the shadow. So instead of having multiple layers of shadow and, and you know, having dealing with the, that level of, of, of visual depth, it's just, it's shadow and light. And then there's an amazing, possibly the most uh, impressive uh, shot that I remember from the cinema screening I went to was um, the one shot where Jessica walks off stage, jiggles uh, um, Marvin Acme's cheeks, and then walks in front of a spotlight with this beautiful halo around her. And then she goes into shadow and it's like, the the camera and and is just understanding how um it interprets light and shadow but again not pushing it so far in the direction that it comes off as uncanny valley creepy it's still weird and otherworldly that she's there and it kind of you know between that and the performance as well is incredible the performances and all also the other blended visual effects right so you've got physical puppeteers that then you animate over the top of um, you got wire work. You got wire work, and then can we can we talk about? Because I do feel bad that in Super Mario Brothers, I was not particularly um, well. I love Bob Hoskins, but I don't think I was particularly complimentary of him. But I think what this film shows now, M, which is why it's such a good thing that you're such a big Bob fan, and I can see why they're hairy shoulders and whatnot. Um, is I think this this film shows how important it is that an actor trust the filmmakers. And I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm reaching here. I don't know what Bob Hoskins thought of the directors of Super Mario Brothers, but I have a sense that he probably thought these jokers haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just going to just cut my own, get the paycheck and get out. Whereas in this, committed, absolutely committed, but, but trust, right? He trusts, he trusts Zemeckis that he's not going to make him look like an idiot. And Devlin talked about calibration. His performance is all these things. It's pastiche, satire, and goofy. And the best scene for it, or the best um, bit is when, and I loved it because I, I was both sad and laughed, which is the kind of the tone of the whole film, which is serious and then a gag and then back to serious, which is Zemeckis' kind of key masterstroke in all the films that work, is when he's talking about his brother to Roger and he, he's literally being serious, saying it straight about how a piano fell on his head. But as he says the line, and he dropped a piano on him, that's the goofy line. And I think Dolores does it. As, she does, yeah. Oh, it's it, Toon, Toon killed his brother. Pause and everyone the pause. turns around and looks at her and looks, and looks like, ah. Oh. And then she drops a piano on him and everyone turns back to the bar. It's a killer line. What could have possibly happened to you to turn you into such a sourpuss? You want to know? I'll tell you. A tune killed my brother. A tune? No. That's right. A tune. We were investigating a robbery at the First National Bank of Toontown. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working in Toontown. Thought it was a lot of laughs. Anyway, this guy got away with a zillion simoleons. We trailed into a little dive down on Yaxa Street. Went in. Only he got the drop on us. 
Literally. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Said he never made it. I never did find out who that guy was. All I remember was him standing over me laughing with those burning red eyes and that high squeaky voice. Bob Hoskins in this movie, I mean, obviously, I feel like I've kind of maybe over-egged a little bit how much I love Bob Hoskins, but I genuinely do. Um, Egg away. And, and I think it's because getting the right actor for this part was so crucial you know, when you have, obviously, this world where you've got these tunes, it's very slapstick. And then he kind of brings in this balance of this, like, it is like this gritty, noir, 1930s detective, kind of 1940s detective story. But it has to have this balance. And so he, as an actor, also has to have this balance. You know, if he's too goofy, you know, sorry, sorry to drop a pun in there for goofy. But if he is too goofy, then it it kind of takes away the the legitimacy of this serious story about this corporate takeover and you know they want to knock down they want to dip toontown for this freeway and all of that sort of stuff and then if he's too serious then it kind of takes away from the slapstick and the humor so it's a very difficult tonal balance but what i feel about bob hoskins is that i think he he just understood the assignment <laughs> straight away. And and I, I feel like he's the sort of actor that he, you know, get yourself a guy who can do it all. You know, get yourself a guy who can do both. And I think he, he's shown in his career that he can do the serious stuff and he can do the funny stuff. And he just kind of brings it together. And and honestly, the physical humour in in this movie, you know, it, it's got some really funny lines, you know, like you say, the... The piano, you've got the piano dropped on his brother's head, you know, it, it is a funny line. It's delivered in a way that, you know, is supposed to be serious, but ultimately it is funny. But then when you get to the merry, merry-go-round broke down scene at the end where he's doing the little dance, I just, I think that was when I fell in love with Bob Hoskins. Because Hoskins is is coming off like some genuinely kind of imposing performances, not least the Long Good Friday, the, the mm, breakthrough yeah. role. It's, you know, he, he's he's uh, he's legitimized himself. So what's great is that here, because he has established that level of legitimacy, it's like he's um both him and Charles Fleischer. I think what what works so well about them and how they managed to sell this is they were both risking total ridicule. Like, it's one thing to be in, like, a family film where you have to dress in a stupid costume or look at a tennis ball on a stick. But, like, the the amount of um, physical work that Hoskins had to do against nothing, throwing himself around, dragging a rabbit across an office and bouncing over things. And then with Charles Fleischer um, complimenting that by turning up on set dressed as a fucking <laughs> yeah. rabbit, despite not being on screen, was... It's and even like the production cast were looking back and they were thinking that this flashy guy is mental, like this is you know that this is weird and it's kind of unsettling. But I think you need that level of like you have to push just such a weird amount of energy onto the set. Otherwise, um, and Patrick, you've been on a lot more sets than than any of us, and like I would imagine that like it's difficult to overcome the basic embarrassment at having to do fake things in front of large numbers of people, right? 
I always felt like that's what happened to Christian Bale when he lost his shit about the lights. He just looked down at himself and he's like, the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like... Em, I want, I want to get your opinion on this as well, because along with Hoskins selling it completely, and from technical points of view that we're, we're talking about, the, the, the practice of this film, I feel surely led the way to revolutionary CGI in the nineties that we've spoken about before. They're learning new technology and the, the, on the, I don't know whether the documentary you mentioned earlier, Dev, was Behind the Ears, which is on Disney Plus as well as an extra, which is really great. It's 47 minutes long or something. It's really interesting. But you can see some of the practices in there, which I'm sure um, is very familiar with. And um, I've seen those practices today, the but in new updated forms, whereas you've got like an animatronic stogie that's going up and down for baby Herman, maybe a green, someone in a green sleeved hand would be holding it now and you'd paint it out for CGI or however you're going to, 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 to draw in um, your animation. Like you said, acting towards a tennis ball and you've got to, you've got to sell it. Um, and what, what do you think? Like the practices in this film, I think paved the way for people to learn from and, the, the CGI of the 90s kind of, it, it helped all of that development. I mean, I certainly think this is one of those revolutionary movies that it's kind of low-key in its revolutionariness, if that's even a word. Um, because, you know, just going back to, to what you guys uh, kind of all said at the start, is that you all kind of watch the movie and you just kind of get immersed in this world and you don't kind of think necessarily, oh, how did they do that? That's just my weird brain. My weird brain always goes, well, how did they do that? Um, that I'm just a bit of a weirdo. But I do think that this movie is low-key revolutionary. And when I say that, I think it is because people look at this movie and, and they do see two worlds kind of intertwined with each other. Um, but the... The actual making of all of that, the whole behind the scenes stuff in that documentary. Um, I haven't seen that documentary recently, actually. I probably saw it about four years ago. Uh, so it's been a while since I saw that particular documentary. But these are techniques that, that technically are still being used today. I mean, they're rudimentary in many ways, but then in other ways, because of the advent of CG, because I think Hollywood relies very much on CG now, um it's just to segue into something completely different and obviously feel free to edit this out if you wish but i went to see dungeons and dragons last night and one of the things that i loved about dungeons and dragons was the practicality of the effects and the fact they did use puppet work and uh, animatronics and they did use cg as well but they had like a blend of everything which to me is like chef's kiss that's perfection you have a blend of everything because I do think Hollywood nowadays, I think they do rely a little bit too much on CG. And that's another reason why I don't think this movie will exist ever again. Because, you know, inevitably someone in Disney at some point will say, hey, I know, we, we love a reboot. Let's reboot Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but we'll make it all CG. And uh, it's probably, the discussions have probably already been had. But it's just, it's just not the same, you know. I understand cg to a point that you know when you when you want a big hulking dragon on screen then yeah you probably are better to you know stick that in cg but the thing that i love most about this movie is the fact that it's quietly revolutionary when people talk about 
you know, the history of animation, when people talk about practical effects, when people talk about animatronics, they don't necessarily come to Who Framed Roger Rabbit because it's, I don't think people see it like that. I think people do just see it as, oh, it's just this, it is just what it is. I don't think people kind of look at it. Maybe people don't look at it the way I look at it because I do look at it like it is just a, a technical marvel. Um, but, and, and in many ways as well, just on the Marvel topic, because, you know, let's just segue into Marvel. This is kind of a bit like, you know, like the Marvel kind of cinematic universe kind of thing. This is really the one of the first instances of a shared cinematic universe, is it not? Well, here's my notes. I need to show you the, the word I wrote down here. Multiverse! Yeah. <laughs> I wrote like it's an animation multiverse of characters all yeah. coming together, yeah. And one of the reasons why I think this this movie endures, again, it's, it's, it is a technical aspect, but it's it's the cheapest of the technique. It's the it's the paper and the pen. It's the script because the script is super tight, super tight. I mean, we've already talked about the world building; it's all done visually, but every line in this movie has a purpose. There's no throwaway quips that don't have some form of meaning later on. And one of the things that I love, you guys know this from Aliens, my favourite setup and payoff is that Ripley smokes and then has a lighter and gets out. This film is littered with them, littered with setup and payoff that you see in the first 40 minutes that then come back round. And that just speaks of a script that is really well written. Everything that happens after Marvin Acme's had a safe dropped on his head, all the gags, those are the gags that's going to be used in the finale in the big fight against Doom, which is, you know... Even the setup that the weasels will laugh themselves to death. There's a line by Doom that says, laughter will kill you, and then that obviously comes back Well, they say it three times, and there's the hammer with the the punch, the, the, the fist. It's fucking good. What um what I really love about um when you're saying about the script being so tight is that it just kind of what it does is it just it wraps everything up in just it's the coherence of if you are gonna homage the golden age of American animation then you are going to end up setting something in the 1940s when it was at its absolute peak which means you have to um you which is why you know even though the animation is extraordinarily state of the art I don't believe they were doing anything. Um, they weren't using tools that you wouldn't have. They are still hand painted cells, so you could theoretically have made something like this at that era. And there is some incredible technical marvels back in, like Charles Fleischer's stuff that he was doing back in the thirties with early rotoscoping. And it, mm-hmm. it's, we set something in the forties. So it's like, well, naturally you would gravitate towards film noir. One of the other things that was uh, uh, big in the forties. And then, what's the plot going to be about? It's going to be about <laughs> the destruction of the Los Angeles public transport system. <laughs> which is a real thing that happened. The best conspiracies are conspiracies that are real. It wasn't done by a maniacal cartoon and, judge. And building of freeways done. and destruction of property to, for profits, all of this. These, these are all the changes that, they were, that were done from the books. The book was written as if it was modern day, so it would have been set in the 80s. Um, I think the only thing that Zemeckis and the screenwriters kept were the characters. Everything else they binned. They binned the plot. They binned... Well, they didn't, they also didn't bin some of the overtly sexual stuff. But again, it's kind of the forties. So it's, it is the, um, it's the patter of the day, isn't it? There's lots and lots of whoo, hoo, chooch. I mean, the, my favorite gag, well, one of my favorite gags is the booby trap gag. 
which is just again, yeah. it's just yeah. an yeah. offline Bob Hoskins. It's the way he says it. It's like good booby trap. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Done. Uh, M, you said you were, you knew that it was from a book. Have you have you read it, or are you familiar with the with the, the original story? Uh, so I've never read the book, uh, but all I know about the original book the, uh, is who censored Roger Rabbit. Um, it was by Gary K. Wolf. Uh, it was actually published in 1981. And uh, the only, and it, it was substantially different. So like Gally said, they just took characters. Um, so the I think the tone of the, the novel is a lot darker. Um, and the general plot is Roger Rabbit actually dies and then comes back to life as a doppelganger to solve his own murder. Oh, wow. Because you can't kill tunes. Well, unless you've got dip, which is absolutely petrifying, by the way. You know the, the scene with Judge Doom and the little shoe? Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. As a child. That's what I was, that's what I was referring to right at the beginning of the discussion when I talked about those adult themes. I mean, that yeah. is a, that's a moment that will etch into yeah. your brain as a child, right? That you, and again, setting up the, these tunes, they are mortal. You know, you can kill them. And it's a, it's a horrible death. It's, uh, if that were, even the way that, uh, Doom gets crushed. Oh, is, God. Like, if you're a child, <laughs> that is horrifying. When, when he's screaming. When Doom has the horrifying. red eyes, though, it's not screaming. Like, it's high pitched. It's a different voice actor. But that, that actually, when you say first impressions of the film, that stayed with me. I remember being really unnerved and really scared. And of course, Christopher Lloyd is Christopher Lloyd, who's fucking awesome. And that, I found that really, even this morning watching it, like, this is horrible. This is a real bad guy that's terrifying. And that shoe, he kill, he kills out of pure sadism, right? It doesn't, yeah. it hasn't even done anything wrong apart from being dead cute and going, but I think that, that just kind of adds to, you know, if you if you want to look at a character that's just really pure evil, you know, one of mm. the best villains that I think has ever been put on screen, I think people wouldn't necessarily go, oh, Judge Doom from Roger Rabbit. But seriously, Judge Doom is unhinged and sadistic and really fucking scary, like genuine terrifying. And um, one of the things that I was going to mention earlier was apparently uh, Tim Curry. Uh, was considered, oh, wow. but they thought he was too scary. <laughs> so they went Christopher Lloyd because obviously Christopher Lloyd is like everyone's dad, basically. Everyone loves Christopher Lloyd. And then he's just like literally the scariest piece of shit that's ever been yeah. to cinema. Um, and just so terrifying. Um, I love his hairdo. Little, little tuft. Little Tintin. When he gets, you know, like you said, when he gets, he gets run over by the steamroller. But like even that scene as well, where he's stuck to the steamroller, and you can see him going under. This is a family movie. This is a movie that you put on for your kids. But but then it goes back to, isn't it personifying animation? You know, when he blows himself back into uh, not flat, well, exactly. <laughs> blows himself. Exactly. You laughed at blows himself. <laughs> <laughs> Come on! I didn't, but now, I'm, now I do. <laughs> we used the was it the balloon? Oh God, you've got the yeah. giggling now. Yeah, like that—that's that's animation on a yeah. person, isn't it? It's how you know when you flatten the Roadrunner, uh, not the Roadrunner, uh, Wiley Coyote. When you flatten him, they has to they stick their thumb in their mouth and they they um, inhale themselves back to full form. And I, I love that little aspect of it. Since I've had. Toontown under my jurisdiction, my goal has been to rein in the insanity, and the only way to do that is to make Toons respect the law. 
How did that gargoyle get to be a judge? Spread a bunch of simoleons around Toontown a couple years back. Bought the election. What's that? Remember how we always thought there wasn't a way to kill a tomb? Well, Doom found the way. Turpentine, acetone, benzene. He calls it the dip. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. Robert Zemeckis. Um, he basically wouldn't do the film unless he had Final Cut Privilege. And I feel like had he not had that, we wouldn't have had Jessica Rabbit as sexualized as she is. We wouldn't have had uh, Eddie Valiant's alcoholism being as serious as it is. And we certainly wouldn't have Judge Doom being flattened by a steamroller. So really, and again, it kind of goes back to what I said, this movie would never be made again because Disney would never allow a director to have final cut privilege on a movie with these kind of uh, plot points and subject matters because it's not this was obviously a touchstone movie so it was released under the quote-unquote more adult label of disney it was it was the jessica rabbit stuff that that made them go that right they weren't going to put it under the disney banner because of the overtly sexualized rabbit wife (laughs) can we talk about jessica rabbit because i feel like we need we need to talk about jessica uh i mean jessica Jessica's fascinating because if you look at, you know, the any kind of merchandise nowadays for, for the movie Roger Rabbit, you won't find much about Jessica. Jessica has basically been not deleted, but Jessica in, in like official terminology, I don't think Disney want to distance themselves from Jessica. Um, because I think they they see Jessica as like the, you know, this sultry femme fatale. I see Jessica as something very different. The movie does uh, set her up as like this femme fatale character, this very sexual character. She's singing in a club. She's flirting with the guys. You know, she is the the bad girl character. I don't see Jessica as that character. She She's basically, she's there for the male gaze. She's basically this parody character. Um, she's supposed to be like the sex symbol, but... She's actually set up in the plot. And again, going back to this very tight script that you mentioned, Gally, the script basically suggests that Jessica is at fault, that it's, you know, that Jessica played patty cake, that Jessica's basically the cause of all of these problems, that Jessica's the murderer. And it basically points to Jessica every single time. And I kind of feel like in a way, the movie kind of does Jessica a little bit dirty because they take this very very sexual female character with incredibly large breasts, a very tiny waist. I, I hadn't um, noticed. I say, you hadn't noticed. Well, maybe watch it again, Patrick, just to, to look <laughs> um, But can I just say as well, the animation on Jessica with that sparkling dress, that was all obviously done by hand. It's absolutely stunning, the work that they did on Jessica. But also, when I look at Jessica... Maybe it's a woman thing. I don't know. But I don't see Jessica as anything other than a loving wife. There was a key line that I got for that, um, which was, um, did she say to Valiant when they meet in Toontown, she says, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my husband or something. Um, That was the key line for me, for her throughout. Yeah. And I would also challenge the, she's just there as a sex symbol, because when we first see it, yes, it's a, it's a sultry performance. 
but I got contempt from her towards the men. I don't get a sense that she's like being fueled or energized by the performance because literally the men are gazing at her. I get the sense it's just like these pathetic buffoons will will fall under whatever I do, and there's contempt there. But it's also there is a sexist power thing, Gally, and she uses it. But what's I think what like so wonderful about it is that you understand it yeah. because of how she's sold in universe the way that she's drawn the voice performance is fantastic kathleen is doing some good work of, yeah it's you know the whole thing is just so kind of uh, the 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 musical performance is fucking unbelievably yeah. well performed Great like, scene. it's it kind of because the, the the film has been so um uh rapid up until that point understandably because they got a lot to get through and also they're trying to keep up this pace and it's the first time that the film really just slows down its pace completely and i think that that's just like such an incredible thing that that again you can you can do in terms of um you can make the audience buy these things and then you can make them buy the the extraordinarily sexy illustration and also um you guys seen the other the other guys yeah, with yeah. Warburg and Will Farrell. Oh yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. They got the gag about um, Will Farrell being married to Eva uh. Mendes from this, because that's the whole gag, yeah. isn't it? That everyone constantly says, "What married to well, the, the, the cracking lines Rabbit. from Betty Boo?" It says, "Lucky gal about Jessica." Gee, what a lucky girl. Uh, yeah, you know what? I didn't lucky realize till this week for some stupid when I was younger reason uh-huh. that Jessica Rabbit Rabbit is a surname. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason i hadn't made the connection because she's married to roger which is a really dumb thing but there you go so but what do you think um on the fascination with with jessica from a an aesthetic point of view i mean i'm, I'm not suggesting that you know all the guys are horny we're not all alike Ham. come on uh, you know some people <laughs> some people just turn into redheads and that's okay yeah um but you know i I do feel like the design of Jessica is is obviously very intentional. They did want to go. They, it's fantastical, you know, isn't it? About, it's in, like an incredible. It's 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 the idea of of everyone's dream woman, basically. You know, a curvaceous, tall, beautiful, sultry, Kathleen Turner voiced um, femme fatale. Um, and then you know to kind of juxtapose that with a character like Roger. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like if Jessica was an actual rabbit, say she was just the female version of Roger with a redhead, redheaded wig, yeah. it, it, the, the movie obviously wouldn't work because she needed to be the sort of character that could be framed for this yes, murder. Yeah. And, could be... and it harks back to the 40s detective film as well, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, going back to the 40s detective films, you always had a busty, beautiful... Mm-hmm. Uh, sultry kind of mysterious woman uh, in the background who you know could be involved um, but what I like about Jessica is she is actually just there to do whatever she can for her husband uh, she loves him that much she saves Valiant in the in the uh, the alley she, um, yeah very capable and not quite the damsel in distress who she always seems in control of her situation as well I know she's been played quite a bit but she's pulling the strings also you know she knew valiant was going to take the photos 
You see her in um, the, the, the scene after she goes to, to Valiant and is obviously playing him by, you know, seducing him. And then you just see her um, in the window of the car yeah. when Valiant chases. So, you know, she's she's in the shadows. She's got the kind of, uh, she's just straddling the line between hero and villain and stuff. What are you talking about? Maroon wanted to blackmail Acme. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, but he said if I didn't pose for those patty cake pictures, Roger would never work in this town again. I couldn't let that happen. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. What a wife. I'm desperate, Mr. Valiant. Can't you see how much I need you? How good does the film look? And we have Mr. Dean Cundy shooting it. And the production yeah. designer did um, Labyrinth, Temple of Doom, and Cutthroat Island, Roger Kane. And I think there's, I think it just, it's really well dressed. All, all of the films, it looks fantastic. The reflection on the piano when, uh, um, which one? Donald stuffs Daffy into his piano, slams down the lid of that black grand piano. And as he's playing, his animation is reflected on the shiny surface of the top of the piano. And it's that kind of, that's the attention to detail that I think that we maybe kind of lament is not always there in modern day products because nobody's going to give you the luxury of those extra days or weeks of work to sell something like that because they'll there's always i'd imagine in in production there's always a push to get it just good enough just good enough to trick them that'll be fine if you can sell it then you can sell it we're talking about modern animation probably the closest one to this for a comparison would be space jam right it's just not the same it's not the same (laughs) (laughs) and that that did that did try and give us a sexy rabbit character and it apparently messed up a lot of kids in the 90s because did you see that there was a minor controversy on the on some of the creepier corners of the internet that um for the the lebron james space jam sequel apparently people were complaining that the that the lady rabbit wasn't sexy anymore. Oh my god! I've uh, I've never subjected myself to the Space Jam sequel because I didn't like Space Jam, and I know that's probably controversial, but I really didn't like Space Jam. I was just the right age for it. I was a big basketball fan, and I loved Looney Tunes cartoons, and I was a proper sucker for it. I was like eleven. Doesn't hold up though, does it, Dev? You seen it recently? Oh, absolutely. Does not, not hold it's, up. It's uh, well, it's okay. And this is where you get the comparison. Well, okay, Patrick, the comparison to this would be that, um, you know, professional trained actor committed to a performance and delivers a performance versus, you know, with the best world of the world, one of the greatest basketball players ever. One of the worst baseball players, and not one of the better actors I've ever seen. <laughs> I got a little bit of a of a rook who it is, and this came around a little circuitously a few months ago. So I was watching, as I always do, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and this time when I was watching it, I couldn't help but notice that uh, um, Aunt Bethany, the actress who played Aunt Bethany, is a fucking genius. Like I'd never really noticed how unbelievably good she is. Like her timing is impeccable, and I was like, she must have been like uh, uh, an like. A, an actor she must have had a long career probably as a comedy actor i figured maybe she was in tv i looked it up she was a vaudeville actress she was on stage she was an impressionist and she was so good that she was hired by charles fleischer to voice betty boop starting in 1931 and she was betty boop from 1931 through 1939 and she came back to voice betty boop for this film wow wow 
which was uh, uh, which was awesome. Before we get into Critics Corner and, and wrap this one up, um, we not really mentioned uh, Bob, like I know him, Bob Zemeckis. Um, he's a strange, he's a strange filmmaker because um, when I was thinking uh, about like the run he was on. And and actually, um, I thought it was interesting you said about Disney giving him final cut because he actually was originally he had applied for the role in 1982 and they turned him down because he had two duffs. I want to hold your hand and use cars. That's which, the one. Uh, I was mm. I was thinking fast car, but no, that's a song. Uh, use yeah, cars. a great a great song as well. Um, but yeah, so so they turned him down, and then when uh, Bob Iger. Evil Bob, some people call him. Um, when Bob, when Bob Iger came uh, into Disney, he I'd just to like be... to definitely say, not me. I, he is, he is literally my boss. <laughs> he he wanted to uh, he wanted to put the project back into development, and then they they knew it was going to cost loads of money. They got Spielberg in with Amblin, and obviously Spielberg goes, "Well, this Bob Zemeckis who's just made Romance in the Stone and Back to the Future, are you fucking nuts? He'll do the film." And there was a bit of a sliding doors moment because they went to Terry Gilliam, which I think Gilliam's version of this would have been probably messier. I think Zemeckis is tight, right? At this point, he's going through a kind of Rob Reiner run of just, he's not missing, is he? Every film is in Well, Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future are like these, you know, extraordinarily well calibrated. There, There was chaos on the making of both of them, but he managed to craft something. He obviously had a very clear vision. And what I love about Gilliam is that he, generally doesn't always have that going in i don't think that he would have the discipline to come up with something that would that would work in the way that this one does gilliam's films they make you work a lot harder to like them especially in the in the sort of mid to late 80s you're looking at i mean a film which i absolutely love is uh the adventures of baron munchausen but that film is chaotic yeah it's, we we discussed uh, it right there are there are elements yeah. there that work and then there are sections of it that are like oh jesus but i mean they'll, they'll always look incredible and i'm sure he would put the work in but um it's unusual to think like robert zemeckis is so unbelievably like committed to all the stuff that he does but i find it difficult to work out what his like tastes are i don't know anybody who says you know when you ask people in our circle like who's your favorite filmmakers no one ever says robert zemeckis but he's made some of you know some of the the world's favorite film top five favorite film back to the future but i think that kind of goes back to the fact he doesn't really have a signature style his style for me has become a kind of not quite James Cameron-esque, but he just explores technology development. He, You know, when he did Polar Express, the fucking dead-eyed people. And I suppose his sensibilities at this point are just spot on because you can see some of the Back to Future techniques that he uses in this. I already mentioned the 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 kind of exposition through photography, mm, yeah. or through photos, which he uses in Back to the Future, he uses in this, and they they feel right. And they're just, you know, just the right amount of information. Not to mention Bob Hoskins is just really funny in those pictures. There's one of them where it's like cops clowning around or something. Yeah, uh, brilliant. I think it kind of goes back to the the general kind of theme of this movie of, of just kind of being maybe a little, a tiny little bit under the radar in a, in a way. Because I feel like having Robert Zemeckis at the helm, he is perfect for a movie like this with its technological advancements. It's a shame, really, I think, that someone like Robert Zemeckis is so influential in Hollywood and yet he's never really kind of had the same kind of credibility to his name that someone like Spielberg or Cameron or 
you know, and, and, and just, just, just on a side note to Spielberg, because Spielberg was pivotal to this movie. He is the MVP of this movie because he basically, it was Spielberg's name that got all of the rights to all of these characters. Wow. Um, and, and not only that, um, so he, he went to Warner Brothers, he went to Turner, Universal to get all these characters and he negotiated $5,000 each, Whoa. like a flat fee. So you want Betty Boop? I'll give you $5,000 and you can have Betty Boop. Um, and that was purely based on Steven Spielberg's name alone and, you know, the goodwill that he has. in. And where they were, right, Em? I mean, imagine trying to do that now with Disney at such a powerhouse that they would not even entertain the idea of doing exactly. a collaboration. With exactly. Them. And, you know, the, the whole negotiating, oh, well, if you want... Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny in a scene, then they have to have the exact same amount of lines, you know, the exact same amount of screen time. Because, uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah, it's just... But well, that's all down to someone like Spielberg. And, you know, but in a way, I kind of feel a bit sad for Robert Zemeckis because every single one of his movies that I've seen, I've enjoyed to some capacity. Um, I can't ever say... I mean, I'm sure you guys will come to me and say, oh, what about this? And I'll go, oh, yeah, that was pretty duff. I was just about but, to say, what about Flight? But it's fine. I've not seen it. So it's fine. Uh, it doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned in in, in the Zemeckis-verse, uh, shall we say. But, um, you know, I, he gets a lot of credit from me for this movie and for Back to the Future. Um, they, I mean, they are childhood staples for, for, you know, people like us millennials who grew up like in the 80s, early 90s. That is cinema to us. Um, but I, I feel like nowadays Robert Zemeckis, I can't even remember what he's done recently. It, I just, I can't even think off the top of my head. I, the movie I looked, recently. I looked it up, and it's been a rough ride post um, Castaway, which was the last. Oh, Castaway was great. He did. Yeah, yeah Castaway yeah. was good. It's uh, but since then, oh god, he's did he did that Disney Pinocchio that came out last year? He did. Oh he my did. god! Uh, a, a straight to streaming adaptation of the witches that everyone forgot existed the moment it came out. Uh, something called Mel- uh, Welcome to Marwin, where Steve Carell has a toy. Uh, a- Allied, don't know. I I've seen a bit of his uh, film of the Walk, which I was really disappointed by because the James Marsh documentary. Uh, Man on Wire is an extraordinary piece of work and the walk is dead on arrival. It's so flat. To be fair, a lot of the the kind of the boomer icons have suffered from kind of lessened reputations over the, the, the last 20 years. Hasn't been great to a lot of them. You know, Coppola is struggling to get anything made. Um, uh, Scorsese still making stuff, but he's having to sort of put it onto streaming platforms and stuff. And even Spielberg is doing incredible work. Me and Gally were just talking the other day that um, uh, I finally got around to watching Bridge of Spies about five years after it came out on BBC One. And it's unbelievable. Oh, and it's it. like, what? No one's seen it. And um, I, you're not the only one. I, I slept on it too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, post, the post is really, really good. It's it's just it's it's such a, a bizarre situation that these like these these great filmmakers are maybe it's just that we're living in such a deluge of content, or, or maybe they've just had their time. We have no Matt today in to throw scorn at the critics, but uh, I'm in search of something. So I was driving through Toontown. I ran into Droopy, who said, "Going up." Mind the step. Um, and I tripped into Critics Corner. And I want to know, Patrick, what did they have to say about this film going down? I thought you were going to do the, the parachute thing with Mickey. 
Never mind. Oh, a spare? Never mind. That's another good Never gag. Mind. I'll save that for the summary. <clears throat> yeah. Well, Matt might be able to find more than I did, but you know what? I struggled to find much negative about the film, which I think our sandwiches have kind of come out throughout the review today and um, for the same. And Ebert, four stars, which I think is his highest um, rating. He said, it's the kind of movie that gets made once in a blue moon because it represents an immense challenge to the filmmakers. They have to make a good movie while inventing new technology at the same time. And I've never seen anything like it before. It's sheer enchanted entertainment from the first frame to the last. A joyous, giddy, goofy celebration of the kind of fun you can have with a movie camera. Boom. He uh, agreed that it's one of the films of the year with Siskel, who chimed in, and he fucking loved it as well. He particularly um, loved Hoskins. And he said um, he's going to go back to see the movie to watch the opening sequence alone. It was so dazzling and so funny. Uh, Empire gave it five stars. And I found some letterbox reviews, which I'm going to, if you remember Bug by Adam Buxton, I'm going to do them in City Voices. <clears throat> so Denny said, yeah, that shit's flawless. And Carsten um, <laughs> said, Looks great for the 80s, but this would never happen in real life. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck does Carsten mean? It would never happen in real life. That comment was my particular favourite. Um, Adam Bolt. <laughs> that poor boot did nothing wrong. <laughs> and finally, Andrew. Stunning stuff to this very day. You're quite right, Andrew. Andrew, you win the Mars bar today. Well put, son. <laughs> Does that indicate that essentially this was extraordinarily well received? Um, I couldn't find anything negative about it. I, I didn't look for too long, but everything was four and five yeah. star that I could see. A few letterbox people were three star, like a little bit sniffy. Pop quiz, hot shot. Okay, guys, a quick reminder of the score, though he is absent, Matt is leading with six points, Dublin's on five, Gally's on two, and we have a new player today with M. Welcome, M, to the game. Pop quiz, what is your buzzer, M? I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Very good, very good. Devlin, let's hear your buzzer, please. This means war. <laughs> okay, very good. Gally, what's your buzzer? Excuse me, Tuts. Oh, excuse me, Tuts. Very good. Right then, question one. Question one. What was Eddie's brother's name? This means war. Oh, Devlin was in there first. Theodore J. Valiant. Perfect. I would have accepted Teddy. That is one point to Devlin. Well done. Question two. How much is the reward Doom draws on the chalkboard for Rabbit Dip? Excuse me, Tuts. $500. No, I'm afraid you're wrong. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Uh, M, M. 5,000. 5,000 is correct. Scully, you were one zero off. Smackaroos, I was off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a close one there. That was good. Uh, I could feel the tension in as we... Gally, you can um, draw up here with question three. Question three is, name one ingredient in Doom's Dip. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Turpentine! Turpentine is correct! Well done! Well done, M. M, on uh, is that beginner's luck? We will never know. But M, you uh, come away with today's victory. I would have accepted uh, acetone and 
Yeah. You know, the other good thing, Gam, there is that you've now overtaken me on the quiz. Well played, everyone. Well played, M. Cracking, cracking win there. Excellent. Well done, M. Well, um, that leaves me to ask the questions, which is our final thoughts and our recommendations to our listeners. I'll start with you, Em. Uh, your final thoughts on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and would you recommend it to our listeners? I adore this movie. I think it's genuinely one of the most wonderful movies that Disney have ever done. And that's saying a lot. You know, if you look at the Disney back catalogue, Disney have historically, I mean, I know they recently celebrated their centenary and, you know, you go back 100 years, and Disney have been kind of there sort of all that time. Um, and I've covered a lot of Disney movies on the podcast. Um, and there's always something wonderful about Disney movies, apart from some. Uh, <laughs> you know, some more recent ones aren't great. But this is kind of the heyday of, of, of Disney for me. This is also going into um, the Renaissance period as well. Um, you know, this came out in 88. Little Mermaid came out in 89. Um, and I kind of, in a way, class this as part of the Disney Renaissance because I, I think without this movie, without the faith in the Disney animation department, you know, if you look back at Disney animation in the early 80s, they were really struggling. They were closing the uh, Disney animation. They were moving studios. You know, they didn't have any faith in animation at the time. They were focusing on live action. And had this movie not come out, I feel like, and, and obviously done as, as well as it did, I feel like the animation landscape would be a lot different. I feel like they wouldn't have had faith in The Little Mermaid. They then wouldn't have had faith in, you know, going into Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and The Lion King and all of those wonderful movies that are just... No matter how many times Disney tries to do quote-unquote live-action remakes, the animations are always better, and I think there's a reason for that. I think that we take animation for granted. But I think this movie is basically there to say... Not only do we take animation for granted, not only do we take Looney Tunes characters for granted and all those wonderful animations that we grew up with, but this movie is basically telling us that animation is on a par with live action. Animation isn't a second-class citizen. Uh, you know, like Patrick said earlier with Guillermo del Toro when he won the Oscar and saying, you know, animation is cinema. It is cinema. And this movie, in all of the fantastic things this movie does, and all of the things we've talked about, this movie does so amazingly well. The one thing that it does for me is it puts the two mediums together and says these are equal because you can't have one without the other. We all have kind of a bit of a responsibility, I think, to, to seek out movies like this, movies that are so important. Sorry, I'm rambling, but I'm so passionate about this. Um, fi films that harken back to those kind of glory days of, of animation. Because while CG animation is wonderful and there's been so many wonderful, you know, look at movies like Encanto and Tangled and, you know, just wonderful CG animated movies. There's really something so special about hand-drawn cell animation. And this movie, it is a parody, you know, it is, it is trying to be a silly parody. But I think it's also, you know, quote unquote, you know, like when Roger to his wife, Jessica, this is a love letter. This is, you know, oh, animation, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And this this movie is a five-star movie. It, pure and simple. There's, there's nothing, I can't say enough good things about this movie. 
I, I mean, I could, but we're running out of time, so I, I can't. What about you, Kelly? Do you, do you recommend it? And Put aside all the technical stuff as a movie, as a film, characters, plots, entertainment. It's got it all. Um, and that hybrid animation, as you say, will not see the likes of it again because it can be easily replicated now using um, using far more advanced technology. But I was nostalgic for this type of, uh, of the, this type of animation, and it, like I say, it's a celebration. It's a love letter. Um, I also think as well that you know we didn't really mention it in our discussion, but you talked about it being a landmark film, and I I absolutely agree with that because I think. The movies from Pixar, you know, hold my drink, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I don't think you get that blend of tight scripts, add a mixture of adult and children, children's themes and, and, and make it so it's for the broadest of audiences and nobody feels like they're being pandered to. Everyone feels like they're being catered to. And I think this is this is the start of that. So when you say Disney Renaissance, I agree. And I also think it, it definitely bred life into those other projects and those other studios. You know, and I say Pixar for me was the one that early run from Pixar feels like Who Framed Roger Rabbit had a lot to say about how they tightly constructed their scripts. Um, so yeah, this is an absolute strong recommendation. Um, and I don't need to caveat it because I think it's for everybody. I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the performances. I will say this, though. If you watch the film, do what I did, which is then watch on YouTube Bob Hoskins doing all the stuff but without anything. It's just fascinating to watch him go fully committed with nothing. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you've seen, might have seen behind the scenes footage of, of actors working with tennis balls. He didn't even have a tennis ball. He was literally just throwing, throwing himself around a room. And as, as Devlin said... The, the levels of embarrassment that he had to clearly uh, hurdle over in order to do that. I know he's an actor. It's his job. But, um, yeah, awesome. Loved it. Thank you very much, Jan, for picking it. What about you, Patrick? Yeah, it's a big recommendation. I, I'll echo both of your sentiments. Um, I thought it was awesome, actually. Uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it when I was a kid. And I remember it, watching it at home with my family I think I watched it several times, and <clears throat> I have no idea why it's taken so long to revisit it. So thanks again, Em, because I'm really glad I did this week. And I was really quite taken with how brilliant a film it was, rather than just a film I enjoyed when I was a kid and perhaps didn't appreciate it. I certainly didn't appreciate the technicals to it when I was younger, and now, I mean, they are quite extraordinary. But... It's not just about that. It's a really well-made film. It's a really well-told uh, story and example of filmmaking from acting, production design, the camera work. Um, Sylvester's music, while it reminds me of Back to the Future, it still does a really good job in here. Um, you know, like, there's just something so joyous about watching Hopkins and Roger Rabbit in a room together and completely believing that it's real and Flash's work Gully mentioned the relationship between them and and the the energy that they have it really works and that's from a really good script funny enough Gally, you like the script (laughs) the writers went on to write Wild Wild West which I thought you'd like to know what are you making Um, Wild (laughs) Wild yeah I was thoroughly entertained it's um, oh I'd like to watch it 
you know, it's something I'd like to revisit more often because it's it's funny. It's really fucking funny as well. This film, some of the underhanded stuff, even the the opening. One of uh, Hoskins, um, Eddie Valiant's first lines is. What do you know about show business? There's no business like it. No business I know. It's a cracking line. It's so good. And the way he delivers it, my God. Um, yeah, it's terrific. Uh, Devlin, how, how about you? Um, well, not much to say other than uh, thanks very much to M for picking this one because I also hadn't seen it in quite some time and um, – it blew me away and to be able to have my first rewatch of it in several years be at the cinema was just like i don't know that i would have gone and that's not a um a slight on the film because i always really liked it i guess i just i probably needed an impetus to 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 go back to this one maybe i felt like i already knew it um and it's just so unbelievably enjoyable it's it it hit me this time in the same way that something like Raiders of the Lost Ark does where it's like why don't I just watch this all the time like why am I not just allowing myself to watch this so frequently and and you um I totally agree with what you were saying about the the labor of love it's it's such a specific time that these filmmakers got together and it is that lightning in a bottle kind of era where they were able to use the, the the exactly appropriate medium to um to show their reverence for what they were revering. It was a time when films were still handmade, so if you wanted to make a kind of stagey backlot looking uh Hollywood private eye detective gumshoe story, you could build it on those sets, and those sets were gonna look pretty much like the sets that you used to use back in the day. You're going to use hand-drawn traditional animation techniques in a way that something like, unfortunately, as much as Joe Dante clearly loves the Warner Brothers cartoons, something like Looney Tunes back in action just doesn't have the staying power of something like this. Uh, and it's probably because it just came too late. It came too late that the, you know, maybe we were also just perfectly calibrated to be the audience for it as well. You know, we grew up with these characters and we grew up with these characters, like you said, they were just coming back around disney had had a downer of a of an 80s they were losing their grip their iron grip on the family audience warner brothers cartoons were still on tv they were stuffed into the schedules but they were inexpensive program filler you know they were a t-shirt and and nothing more and this kind of breathed new life into them you know we you don't get the not particularly great space jam if this doesn't happen um but it's you know it um I think it just rekindled a lot of people's love and, uh, you know, God bless Steven Spielberg and his, uh, his very uniquely, uh, calibrated boomer sensibilities because also we get the Animaniacs out of this, which is also fucking brilliant and probably deserves a lot more of a, um, and it has a similar kind of, uh, reverence, irreverence kind of duality going on, which is that, you know, um, anything that, that these things reference. They, they love what they're referencing and they understand it at a really deep level. And it means that it transmits audiences, you know, uh, they, they, they get this. They might be fooled into, you know, paying ticket prices for something for an amount of time, but you don't get staying power unless you understand that the people who are making something truly had to make it against all odds, against all the 
uh, uh, you know, nothing needs to exist. So they had to will this, this, this piece of, of media into creation. It took a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of years, and it was well worth it. And if you haven't seen it in a while, yeah, jump on it, watch it. Watch it with people as well, because it's super fun. Team, where, and I bet I know where I can find it, but where can our audience find Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Disney Plus! Give Disney your money. You can also pick up a uh, 4K restored Blu-ray. Yeah, it's in the usual available, I don't know about South Korea, sorry Matt, if you're listening. Um, uh, you, you know, you can rent it and pay for it here, but if you're a subscriber on Disney Plus, you can watch it there. And it's a 4K, like, streaming service that Disney K has. Disney K, Disney Plus have. Um, it looked very good uh, when I watched it on my TV. Patrick mentioned that on Disney Plus you've also got the the extras, the documentary as well on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's called um, Behind the Ears and it was really good. Um, normally this is the bit where we hawk because we're horrible shells of people. Um, our, our t-shirts and stuff. But we're not going to do that. Um, would you like to tell our listeners... Uh, we, like I say, we're going to put your episode in our show notes. Would you like to explain to our listeners where they can find your show um, if they if they so wish? I mean, if anyone does want to find me uh, and, you know, is has been enraptured by my voluptuousness, my beauty and my grace, you know, just like Jessica. Um, I've been performing for you all on stage. Uh, now I've come off stage and I've got my little I'm giving you a little cheeky chops getting, you know, your little handkerchief and and, and uh, rubbing it on your heads and saying, uh, you can find my podcast, it's Verbal Diorama. It's basically, I talk about the history and legacy of movies you know, movies you don't. So I go into the history of the certain film that I'm talking about. Uh, I tend to do a different one every episode. So uh, there's 200 plus episodes of Verbal Diorama out there um, for pe- for people's ears uh, and hearts. Um, but yeah, you can find Verbal Diorama basically wherever you find the Rewind Movie Podcast. So, you know, whatever app you're currently listening on, have a little bit of a search for Verbal Diorama if you so wish. Uh, and I'm obviously on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Verbal Diorama. And, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of animation, as you can probably tell. I don't know if I've made that obvious, but, uh... I do love, love to talk about animation, but it's not just animation on the podcast. It's everything. I like to talk about everything. I love everything. I believe uh, your latest episode is about um, the Jennifer Lopez uh, stripper thriller Hustlers. Yes. Stripper thriller. Excellent. I don't know if that's what it's about. I'm list- I'm going to have to listen to the podcast. It's a good film. Excellent. Well, we'll say thank you very much, Em, for coming on and, uh, and joining us and, and picking Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Genuinely, um, as I say... Devlin rightfully said sometimes you need to kick up the arse to watch these films and then you watch them and you go why haven't I seen that in so long I feel like even though there's nothing Christmassy about it it feels like the kind of warm comfort blanket that I would like to watch in my run up to Christmas I don't know why I think it is because Patrick said it's so bloody funny it really is such a funny film um, that I you know there were plenty of belly laughs from me and I watched it on my own which is you know not the way to do it really when you're laughing but anyway so no thank you very much Em for coming on and we will 
more than happily have you back um, to finish off Bob. Excuse me. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't want to finish him off. I know we were talking about my Yorkshire pudding earlier, but let's, let's not finish the poor guy off. Must love Bob. We will say our goodbyes then, shall we, team? It's the podcaster who handles Hollywood cream puffs for a living. It's Galley in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone. Tire salons, automobile dealerships, and wonderful, wonderful billboards reaching as far as the eye can see. My God, it'll be beautiful. It's Devlin in London. Is that a rabbit in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? It's Patrick in London. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Em. Come on, Galley, Devlin, Patrick. Let's go home. I'll bake you a carrot cake. It's Em from Warwickshire. Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Well, I wish I could be like a bird in the sky. How sweet it would be if I my heart I could fly. Heart soared to the sun and look down at the sea. Then I'd say.